Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Thank you very much. So you don't know what you're applauding yet, do you? All the hard work and preparation that I did this really late last night. No, no. Shh. Right. Um, Shall I read our passage today? It's from Luke 6, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So hello, if you've not met me before, I'm called James. Um, I'm married to Pat down here um, for her. Um, We've got some lovely kids spread around in other places with other people looking after them, which is most, most... Um, I'm most grateful for, honestly. And if you have children, I guess you have that experience. If you're feeling like you want to have children one day when I get some practice, go and look after our kids. You'll love it, and it will only give you the great joy and anticipation of one day when you might have them yourselves. Or you'll do something to stop the growth of the population in the world, which, either way, it's going to be a good thing. Um, Hello at home, too. Um, I hope you're not dying um, uh, or in your beds with... um, in the sea of perspiration that seemed to take us over last night. Anyone else have that? Yeah, it was absolutely horrendous, wasn't it? I was thinking, we're just not set up for this. We don't have air conditioning in our houses. We're, just, we're not used to having temperatures of 22 degrees in the middle of the night. Um, and when we do, you open the windows and the mosquitoes come in and they just keep biting Pat. I'm just not that tasty. Um, anyway, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's why we're here this morning. And it's one of the most well-known parables, um, I guess, uh, in the world. And I've got a couple of pictures. Um, As with all good parables, some famous people have painted them. So this is Jacopo uh, Bassano, who painted it in 1562 or 63. Jacopo, what a great name. If you were planning on having children, Jacopo, I think that's a, you could do that, couldn't you? I'd like Jacopo Copeland. There's There's something to it. Or, well, if that's a bit old for you and you think like, you know, that doesn't look very much like sort of the Middle East. How about this? You've also got Vincent van Gogh, or Vincent van Gogh, if you mispronounce it, but I think it's supposed to be or something like that. Apologies to any uh, Dutch speakers in here. And which 
looks a little bit more like Edward Munch's The Scream, um, I think. But you know, there's just a bit more, bit more sand in this picture. Anyway, as I've been preparing for this sermon, um, I've thought back to all the ways that I've heard this parable explained to me, or, or indeed that I have um, used it before in uh, talks, um, what it means and what it means that I should do. And I remember a particular time when I saw a dramatization of this parable, where the, the Good Samaritan was actually an Islamic fundamentalist just after the Twin Towers um, came crashing down in 2001. And it was sort of begging the question, who is my neighbor? Who, is, who can be conceived of the Good Samaritan? I remember at the time there was a sense of going, no, that can't possibly be the case. You couldn't possibly posit an Islamic fundamentalist ever as being the Good Samaritan. And, but it gave me pause for thought at the time. I've heard other people explain this parable as to why, you know, the priest and the Levite walk past because they're really religious men. If they got near somebody who was dirty, they'd become unclean and then they wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be able to carry out their duties as part of the temp temple sacrifice system. It was like they're avoiding the Good Samaritan kind of for the greater good because he's just one person over there. You know, they're avoiding the Rob man, sorry. He's just one person over there. But if I go near him, I won't be able to serve the rest of my people. So out of my duty to all the people who are you know, I am responsible for, I will ignore this person. I thought, yeah, a bit weird. Or maybe you've heard this parable as a, as, as a call to action. You know, we're going to read this now, and you all need to be the Good Samaritan. I used to work for a, a Christian charity working in foster adoption. I've used this talk as well to use the, who is your neighbor? And actually, could your neighbor be one of the 100,000 children in care in the UK every year who need someone to become a foster carer for them, open their home and care for them? I've used that, and I've gone into this in detail on that front. And there's just so much that can be explored, um, I think, in this passage. But as I've been preparing this time, I've seen that the heart of this parable is actually a conversation between Jesus and the expert. I've kind of missed that before. And he's asking the most personal question. What must I do to be saved? It's almost, what is the essence of being a human? And as preparing, this conversation's kind of struck me, uh, you know, like never before. I've always been tempted to get onto the parable bit, a bit like a child at Christmas running down to rip open the presents just because I want to get to the toys. And I've just lost the significance of what it was all about, the giving and, and, and the thought that my parents or whoever has bought me a present has put into doing that for me. I just want, I just want the gift and forget the giver. I've been really happy with that shine a bit and I've not paid attention to the whole setup. And I doubt... I'm alone in that. I expect that some of you too, when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, focus on the parable and kind of forget the bit that comes before. And we like it too, because it's a really easy parable to kind of think, oh, well, yeah, I should be like the Good Samaritan. We've got Samaritans in our society, one of the largest charities in the UK. We can all look at ourselves and think, yeah, I want to be like the Good Samaritan, because all I need to do is look after somebody and be, be, be kind, be nice, look after somebody in need and, and, and avoid hypocrisy. And I think there's something in it that also appeals to us because there's this, like, this little like, iconoclastic kick at uh, the religious leaders and go, oh, yeah, hypocritical so-and-sos, aren't they? We all like that. And, you know, Andy is my brother-in-law, so some of that's a bit closer to... He's not here. It was bad when the person is the butt of your joke isn't there. He's... Oh, whatever. Anyway, let's keep going. We'll come back to it. Shall I... I'll... I'll... Yeah, we'll do that a bit again. It will probably sound slightly out of context, I think, when we do it. But just laugh, okay? We all got that? Okay, fine. Lovely. But, okay, right. Let's get back to the story, shall we? If we go back to the start. There's this conversation happening between Jesus and this uh, religious expert. 
Um, and given this is the timbre, the voicing of Luke's gospel, there's, there's always the sense going on of the, the clash between Jesus and his teaching and that of the, the leaders in Israel at the time, those people who were uh, giving and teaching, teaching the law. So when he stands up to say, teacher, rabbi, there's a little element of like niggle there, isn't there? It's slight, being slightly sarcastic. He wants to try and best Jesus in this. He wants to test him and ask him. He wants to trap Jesus into you know, either showing that he's wrong and all the things he's been saying and preaching about have been sort of like, you know, the grounds be taken out from him, or that Jesus is going to have to agree with him and his view. So in asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's an important thing here. This, this man is linked with the Pharisees. Um, in the Old Testament, you remember the part of the sort of the, the leaders of the day, you had the Pharisees and the, and the, and, and the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees were the sort of the people who believed only in the first five books of the Torah. They, they didn't believe that there was going to be eternal life or they didn't believe there was going to be a resurrection. And the Pharisees did. And so for the Pharisees, actually, how somebody decided to live the life with that sense of concern was really important to them. So they wanted to do more than just obeying exactly what was in the first five books. They had this sort of like moral compass too. So there is debate that's going on here that the expert in the law would have been involved with um, probably many times before. So, but he asked this question of Jesus and Jesus, like all good teachers, he doesn't just answer the question. He answers the question with a question bringing out what, this, what the questioner is actually wanting to ask. And in his own way, he's teasing that question out for him to trap himself in the truth of his own words, because once you do that, that's all the more irrefutable. So when the expert answers, um, he says, love the Lord with all your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is going to be expecting that everyone would do that they expect that's going to be the response because it is the heart of the question that a purpose of our lives is love and we know that um in our our day and age no different from that that's being spoken about there i think all of us if you go and stand with somebody on the street who's never walked into church before we would be able to have a conversation and agree that lo- that love is the central animating can- characteristic of life and we'll what happens often in public discourse is we spend our time arguing about who is or isn't deserving of love. Um, you know, politicians definitely not, and you know, the nurses definitely yes. Um, what are the parameters? Who are we allowed to love? Who aren't we allowed to love? And we want to then make that part of our public discourse. So, when the expert says this, love the Lord your God, your heart and soul and mind, love your neighbour yourself. He is confident in his response. He's answering something that he knows is right. After all, he is also an expert in Torah law. He isn't asking Jesus to learn anything. He's asking to provoke debate and ultimately demonstrate he's correct. Of course, Jesus can see this coming, right? He knows by saying that you have answered correctly, do this and you will live, that the expert will come back to him on that point. He's kind of just waiting for it to come. And sure enough, the expert isn't satisfied enough with Jesus' response. And this bit is the crux of this whole passage. It says that the expert wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself and ask, and who is my neighbor? You know, he's probably wanting one of two things by asking this. 
want to clearly best Jesus in this conversation when Jesus says who his neighbor is as being a wide definition. He's going to be able to appeal to the populist sort of uh, experience of the time amongst his community of Jews with him to say, no, our community and my neighbor is my Jewish community. That is it. There is no space for anyone else. Or he wants Jesus ultimately to say, yeah, you got me. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's just, you know, I totally agree with you. You're absolutely fine. Yeah, exactly all the things that you've been doing. But what does it mean to love as God has commanded? What are the terms and conditions? See, the expert's effort to try and justify himself, it really lays bare his own ideas of how salvation is achieved. He believes the way to be saved is to follow the Ten Commandments uh, and obey them and all the law that comes after that, and, and he'll be okay. That somehow by effort and adherence to the teaching that he has received, he can somehow obey that and pull himself by, by his own bootstraps or sandal straps because they didn't have boots. That was funnier in my head before I told it. But justifying ourselves is actually a really popular opinion. And I think probably it's pretty popular um, in, in this room. It's kind of like our received wisdom of the day. Even in a world where salvation is no longer considered to be really important or something that we discuss on a regular basis, at least um, explicitly, we all have this like mantra that gets taught. It's called, well, you, you know, be good. And as children grow up, they think about going to heaven. How do you get to heaven? Oh, you, go, you, just, you just be good. Um, and then we might sort of link that somehow to thinking about the Ten Commandments or, or maybe the full sort of Mosaic law or, or, or maybe Islamic teaching, etc. Be a good person. It's, it's, it's all going to be okay. A teacher gives the law and followers justify themselves by meeting the standard that is given to them. And it's really comforting um, because it's essentially binary. Okay, if that's how things work, you know whether you're doing it or not. And um, so you can be satisfied that you're either right or you're wrong. And isn't it nice to do that rather than that little bit in the middle where you're kind of wondering? Um, you're either in or you're out. Good to know where we stand. And, you know, there are communities around the world today that live like this, very much in and out. You're doing the right thing, so you matter. You're not, so you don't matter. It's, it's kind of become how humanity, to some degree, likes working, whether we're admitted or not. So the expert here, he's looking for this narrow definition of what love is. Likely he wants Jesus to say, yeah, it's your fellow Jews. He wants Jesus to justify him by saying, yeah, you know, your narrow way of living and your narrow expectations about what love is, yeah, that's absolutely fine. And he gets to take down this upstart rabbi. But surprise, surprise, that's not what Jesus is about. And the heart of this passage is that our conception, the expert's conception of love, that probably on some level we erroneously believed would, would save us, is not even close to real love, to true love. Because in real and true love, there is no space for exclusivity and a denial to some people because they're on the outside and not deserving of that. And sadly, I think we all live with that kind of calculation, whether we exclude the love from the bullies who bullied us at school or maybe your horrible boss who just ignores all the things that you need um, to have in your life and just makes you work really hard. Or maybe on a meta level, we think it's all those horrible Russian oligarchs or the people who back Putin or Putin himself. We all deny love. Or it's locally nasty Tories. Or 
nasty Labour or nasty Lib Dems or other political parties are available to call. You know, whoever you want to call is nasty, that we say that somehow, no, we will withhold this sense of, of love from them and we will cast judgment upon them. Jesus is saying that's not how it is. And he's trying to show the lawyer in this parable that what you think you're doing when you say that you love is not even love. He wants to realize, the lawyer to realize that all that he's been going for has been exclusive, limited, incomplete, and unsatisfactory. A few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' sermon um, on the plane. Um, and if we cast our minds back, this Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. This is real love. And it's not real love that can be pigeonholed or made exclusive. It can't be given to some or denied to others or ignore other people like the priest and the Levite walking on the other side of the road we're going to come to. The love that Jesus is talking about that he's reflecting, saying this is God's love for us, and this is the love that you are called to, is supposed to be expansive. It's supposed to be extravagant. It's supposed even to potentially be provocative. And there's a second theme running through Jesus' response too. As we've been learning, as we've been going through the book of Luke, there is this uh, sort of clash between Jesus' um, grace-filled message and that of the religious leaders who were very clear on saying, wanting to bring, bring the law and bring all the commandments and the structure and the onerousness of having to obey to all of these different things. There is this clash. And is it as if what is going on here is, is the, he's saying to the expert of the law, says, you think that the law can justify you? And to misquote a few good men, he said, I want the law. You can't handle the law. You know, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. But, you know, you think that the law is going to justify you. You have got no clue when you say that. The law is going to crush you. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, do not think, in, uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to abolish, not abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Which is odd because that kind of seems a little bit what Jesus is doing here. But what he's saying is, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That last line, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The law is too great, even for this great law expert and the keepers and the makers of the law of the day. Even their diligence to devote their whole lives to living by the minutiae of the law is not enough. You cannot justify yourself because once you have broken the law, you are always a lawbreaker. And Jesus is saying, only I can fulfill the law. This expert, a bit like the rich young man, believes that he has been fulfilling God's commandments. But he has been blinded by this observance of the law and his love for legal loopholes that he demonstrates that he does not even understand what love is. He has missed the wood from the trees. He has settled for the letter of the law and ignored the spirit. 
And Jesus is also showing that he's not come just to be another teacher and leave it up for people to justify themselves like everyone who's been before. He is going to lead people into the truth. And he is going to lead this man to realize two things. The first, that he doesn't know what real love is because real love is impossible until you realize that you are incapable of real love, as Tim Keller says. This parable is going to evidence this. You are incapable of real love until you realize that you are incapable of real love. Because second, real love can only begin when we see Jesus's, God's love for us. As it says elsewhere in the Gospels of the sinful woman, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. She has realized the magnitude of the love that she has received so that she can respond. And when we see that Jesus has paid our debts, that we've been saved by his grace, entirely his, not an iota of our own, we are stunned into silence, stunned into humility of the greatness of what he has done. And then from that foundation, we can start to build a life of love as God would have it. So that's the introduction. Let's look at the parable, shall we? Yeah? Great. Um, and it, this parable sets out this astounding um, situation. So first of all, you, you saw that picture at the start, um, Jacopo uh, Bassano's picture. It's, it's really lovely. It's quite medieval. It's so green. He's got a lovely donkey next to him. You can see well, it's pretty dark, but you could see like in the distance this far-off town. It's all quite sort of pastoral, it, whilst he was Italian. It, it suits us. It looks like England, not in a heat wave, um, and we feel comfortable with that. But this here is actually the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is not a hospitable place. It's, it's pretty hard. Once upon a time, I, I went up and down this road. Um, uh, we went, uh, I, I spent a month uh, in Israel, and we actually found um, somebody who's doing their national service, um, an is- Israeli uh, citizen, and we were a little bit further south, and we went to Jericho. And we thought, oh, we want to go to Jericho because it's so exciting, a bunch of us Christians on holiday in Israel, whatever, and then one person who was on their national service who was not a Christian, we were like, no, you can come into Jericho with us. You just need to pretend that you're like one of us. Okay, not that you are uh, Jewish and going into Jericho, which nowadays is a Palestinian town, could well have started an international incident. Um, and we got all the way to the checkpoint, and the first person, the first the guy, and go like, "Are you all international? Yeah, we're all internationals." And then this little, this lady sitting at the back going, "Um, after we're going, um, um," he just thought, oh, "She's going to, she's going, yeah, I, oh, I'm Jewish." She's like, "All oh, right, you can't come in." So I never actually got to go to Jericho, but I have seen this kind of territory. It is inhospitable, and I had a lovely air-conditioned, air-conditioning, so good, a lovely air-conditioned bus to then drive back up into Jerusalem, feeling a little bit aggrieved that this lady hadn't risked an international situation so that we could fill our tourist aims. But, you know, you live and you learn, don't you? Well, this is the road, and it's a dangerous road. It's a place where if you were attacked, you're going to die out there. And so it's significant that when the, the, the man who's been robbed is left half for dead, well, that's just the beginning. The inevitable is coming. Look at it. You think last night was pretty awful. This is hot and it is dry. You're going to not last very long out there. So part of the reason that the priest and the Levite walk past the man who has been robbed um, is, is, you know, I said the things it could be because of their greater responsibility to the rest of the population so they can't possibly become dirty. Um, it, but actually, 
these two people or two sets of people who were class apart, they were set apart. The priest who sort of runs the sacrificial system in the temple and the Levite who was involved in that too. They're people who considered of the highest purity, the highest holiness, the closest to God. They were the intermediaries who would be able to do the sacrifices and pronounce to the people that your sins are forgiven. They are kind of like the priestliness that Jesus actually is the fulfillment of. They've got two considerations here. One is if I go near this person who has been robbed, well, am I going to be robbed too? Because I'm a pretty big deal. I'm at risk. I better walk, walk away and just hurry on to where I need to get to. Or secondly, and I think this is the thing that talks to me more, if they had crossed over and looked at the man, would they have felt responsible? Would they have felt they needed to do something? And so by walking on the other side, they're not even giving themselves the possibility. They know if they go there, they're going to have to do something. But I don't want to do that, so I'm going to avoid it. Ignorance is bliss. I know that second thing is something that I can do far too often. So when the Samaritan comes, he doesn't have those considerations. He could well have done. And Jesus is making this point clear to the expert. Holiness, as advocated by the sort of your, your system, this adherence to law, the temple, the sacrifice, etc. All of that, it doesn't equate to love. It will not save you. In the Old Testament prophet Amos, in 5, 21 to 23, it says, God is speaking and he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. In Micah 6, verse 8, it says, And what does the Lord your God require of you? To love mercy, walk humbly, and do justly. What has God required? He's required that. None of this other stuff. It's there all through the Old Testament, but it is being missed. Kind of the wood not being seen fill the trees. So in contrast to that, the Samaritan is doing something for his sworn enemy. The enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews was significant. Like what you look at in Israel, Palestine now, it's similar to that. This happens on religious lines. It happens on political lines. You had Samaritans who left bones desecrating the temple in the first century in Jerusalem. And so sort of like, almost like, oh, we're going to get you back. So the Jews go, well, let's go and smash up Mount Gerizim because, you know, this is, a, this is a real fight. There is real hatred, more than the English and the Welsh when they play rugby. This is deeply, deeply significant. And... The heart of what Jesus is trying to do here is showing that there is somebody who has been touched by grace that seems totally different to your conception, you expert of the law. This is not just like some kind of compassion being shown on the deserving poor that we get really used to or giving money to a, to a well-run charity where you can be assured that your generosity and your, your compassion is going to go to good use. No, what is being spoken of here is deeply, deeply risky where literally nothing is guaranteed. And I believe this is the outworking of what Jesus was, was preaching earlier on in this gospel in Luke 6 about loving your enemies and not judging because there is no guarantee that any love is going to be returned how you would like it to be. Indeed, if that's how the Samaritan engages this man, I'm going to love you so you're going to love me back. Well, that wouldn't be love. That would be some kind of self-calculated, self-interested move. Remember Jesus' words that if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind and ungrateful. Uh, kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. There is risk running all through this passage for the Samaritan. 
risk in the face of the compassion that he's bringing anything go wrong. Firstly, he is risking his life to go and help this man who has been robbed. He easily could be attacked next. And unlike the priest and the Levite, he's actually got something worth stealing. He's got a donkey. This is pretty valuable. Okay? He is, he is a target. But yet his compassion says, I will oversee that. Secondly, he prioritizes this wounded man over everything else. I always wonder what the Samaritan was going to go and do. You know, he's, he's got his donkey. Maybe he's on a business trip. Maybe he's going to go and see family and friends. But he prioritizes the person in front of him over what else is happening in his calendar. He's willing to do that. Spends a day then at the inn looking after him. And when he knows he has to go, he does something about it. And that's the third thing. He commits financially beyond the point that he can stay giving what is, at the time, two denarii, probably equivalent to two months' rent, so not at all an insignificant amount of money that's going to cost him. And it's a down payment, just a down payment on what he might be doing. He's essentially writing some kind of blank check to an innkeeper to say, look after this man and I will come and sort you out. This is love, this is compassion being demonstrated of the highest order. And it's so telling at the end of Jesus telling this parable when he asks the expert in the law who was the one who was his neighbor. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on on him. Even speaking the name of the Samaritan kind of seems to stick in his throat that even after this demonstration, he can't bring himself, even in what is essentially a made-up story, to possibly give any accolade to the Samaritan. The expert, he lacks this willingness to be able to see compassion for what it's worth and be able to accept it. His pride gets in the way of being able to see what Jesus is saying to him. That unconditional love is what God desires and also what God gives. Jesus ends by saying, go and do likewise. So what what does this mean? What does it mean for us today? Well, principally, I think it means how we treat those who are most ostracized, whatever reason, whether that's wealth, disease, mental health, whatever really matters. Those people who might get us into danger ourselves, how we respond to them really matters. In Matthew, Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. How we show love. It's not a way that we get to justify ourselves, but it is an indication of life in our faith in Jesus. This is a bit of a silly story in one way, but it's something where I got to learn um, uh, a bit more about what having compassion might mean and my inadequacy in it. When I was um, a student, there's, I think there's a picture coming up. One night um, in Oxford, I came out. I didn't actually go to Oxford for undergrad, lest you think I'm really clever and all of that. I went when I had to pay a lot of money, when not many people wanted to go, and I studied refugee studies. So I'm not like one of those super bright, geeky people, in case you were confused after the elocution that I've been giving you now in education. I think, gosh, he's so clever, isn't he? I just love it. You weren't thinking that, were you? Anyway, one night... I was out and I'd been in, in, a, in a bar, I think, watching something. I came out onto Corn Market, which is down the centre of Oxford, and was walking back to my college. And um, uh, a man came up to me and sort of asked for money, a homeless guy. And I didn't have any money. And I also had all these sort of thoughts that matter going, like, you shouldn't give money to homeless people because uh, he might go and spend it on alcohol. And I ignored the 
you know, the, the irony that I'd just been spending my own money on alcohol, but, you know, that was okay for me, but not okay for him. Um, uh, if I was homeless, I might want to go and have a drink because it's going to make being homeless a little bit better. Who knows? Anyway, I was slightly judgmental, but what I said to this guy, I said, well, you know, like, I'm sorry, I don't have any money on me now, but would you like me to buy you breakfast tomorrow? And I look back on this and think, how did this really happen? Because the next morning I went to where I said, I'll buy you breakfast, and there was this guy. Like, he'd remembered, I'd remembered, I, like, where else in the world does it ever happen? Anyway, Carl and I uh, got to know each other over the next year, and we would chat fairly regularly, and I'd think about what did I want to do in my future. I heard his story. We talked about how maybe we should start a, a gardening company for homeless people in Oxford and go and like, start running the gardening in the university parks or whatever, and we'd create sort of bank, uh, sort of banking system where the money could be held in trust for them, because if you're homeless, you don't have a address so you can't get a bank account if you don't have a bank account you can't go and get a home because you need somewhere and think like this horrible how can we break this sort of thing last year i was walking down through wallington and saw hsbc sign up about how they've created new banks in uh, bank accounts in order to be able to try and get that over and thought like maybe i should listen to carl and got into that 15 years earlier and you know that we could have got there a little bit faster again that was the arrogance of thinking that i was going to save the world um, at that point but i used to meet with carl regularly and Carl wasn't always very nice. Some of the other homeless people in Oxford said, oh, yeah, no, he's, he's bullying, he's been nasty to us. But I kept meeting up with him and thought, like, I really enjoyed meeting up with him and learning stuff. And, and you started seeing in doing that, I come from this position of, like, almost superiority, I'll come and get you breakfast. And realised that actually in these conversations, you care just as much what was going on in my life as was happening to him. Sure, I was buying breakfast and, you know, there's something going on there, but, but it was kind of real. And then... I stopped seeing him for a while, and I wondered whether he had, whether he died, because um, there were always rumours that somebody had died amongst the homeless population in Oxford. And I, and I left. I graduated, and a few years later, I went back. And again, one night near the bus stop, a bus bus station in Oxford, I was I was walking out. Probably I had been in the pub um, somewhere, and I think I heard someone going, "James," and and there was Carl. And the sad thing is, his life hadn't moved on. He was still homeless. He was still working in the streets of Oxford as if I was expecting anything that my wonderful thing of taking him out for breakfast and conversation was I'm going to save him, that I was going to be like the good Samaritan for him and sort him out. No, I wasn't. But it also did teach me that there was something on that personal connection of being able to see somebody for who they were rather than what, was, what seemed to be there. As soon as you got past that sense of judgment, there was something really real. But I learned a few things that have been helpful afterwards. Think One, we don't get to see the whole journey. And often when we think of compassion, we want to go and do something and see the improvement from A to B and then be really satisfied with ourselves as that we've been able to see that. You know, when we want to go and tell people about Jesus, we want them to become saved and accept Jesus. So we go, look, look, I took them from A to B and now they're saved. Way! And actually that's not compassion. I'm getting my reward then and there. And compassion is putting that out there without the expectation of reward. And the second thing I think it taught me is I, I can't be a savior. Pat and I fostered for eight years, and that only taught me even more how inadequate I am to try and be savior to anybody. You know, we cared for children who came through our home and thought, oh, we'll you be here forever. Um, and then not, and you kind of wonder that. And that that's sad and that hurts and probably on some level I thought what I was doing was going to be being a savior it isn't we're called to have compassion not be saviors and the third thing is that the need is always there 
almost overwhelmingly so the need is going to be there those hundred thousand children who need care they're always there they're always coming around the homeless people there's always something to walk past even as this preparing for this talk i've been thinking about carl i've walked past somebody asking and i've kept on walking think like this is hard this is overwhelming the need for somebody to be a good samaritan is literally everywhere we live in such a broken world so jesus saying this is what love looks like the bar is so so high when a sinful woman anoints Jesus, uh, he says, the poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. And that, I think, encapsulates a little bit of his point. We will always have our neighbor to care for. But there's something special about what Jesus brings. Well, obviously, you know that we're in church. But <laughs> hear me out a little bit. When you look at the parable... There are four actors um, in this parable, aren't there? There's the priest, the person you expect to be the holiest of the holy, the Andy of the room. Um, he's a hypocrite. I got there. I got there. Yeah. Okay. There's the priest. There's the Andy figure. There's the Levite. Um, uh, the Matthew figure, you know, the one who's really involved in everything. You know, they just, they walk by. I'm just, I'm getting Matt as well just to, it's not all about you. Don't worry. I know that's what you think. So you've got the priest and you've got the Levite. Then the third character, you've got, you've got the man who's been robbed. And then you have the Good Samaritan, the four. I'm sorry, Matt. I'm sorry, Andy. I do love you both deeply. Um, but our focus in this story is often on the Good Samaritan, right? It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're kind of set up for that. And looking at the compassion that he shows and the selflessness with which he does it. Um, and our instinct could be just take away, what, what does the Good Samaritan do? I'll go and do that in my life. And that's right. But I think that's also missing an important part. Because when Jesus is speaking to his Jewish audience, he's inviting each listener to position themselves in the parable that he's saying. That's why Jesus teaches in parables, to build that sense of engagement um, and consideration in what he is saying and how do I relate with that as the listener. And he's asking the listeners, who, who do you think you are? And this set up too to this expert in the law who could well have been a Levite, could well have been a priest, it's not particularly clear. Well, you could be those as the stories unfolds. And if you accept that you're the priest and Levite, maybe there's an honesty um, in doing that. But your attempts to justify yourselves are floundering. And from the parable, you don't want to be them because they're clearly people who have not understood God's love, which they're claiming to be. And to this audience too, who hates the Samaritans that sticks in their throat, well, I couldn't possibly be the Samaritan either. Who is there left for the audience listening to be, to relate to. It's the robbed man, the one who's been left half for dead, the one who is utterly dependent upon others, whose all his respectability has gone. It says that he's had his clothes taken away. He's left there basically naked. There's all this shame of what he is. You have those dreams, don't you, that suddenly you've lost all your clothes and you're out in public and you feel that sense of shame in your heart and go like, this is happening in this parable. Everything is gone. He has lost all ability to save himself. If no one comes through for him, he is going to die on that horrible road. And so Jesus is implying to his listeners, you are all helpless. We are all helpless. Self-justification is futile. We can't do that. We need a savior. We can't live up 
the commandments of God's love in fullness, loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving him because we so often do qualify, even when we try our best not to. And if you're like me, you've failed in that again and again. So when we read this parable, who am I? I am the robbed man. The important thing to have these three people, two people don't know that they're in need of saving and they're one who everything has brought into the point of going, I need saving. I can't hide behind any respectability anymore. Who are you when you listen to this parable? I know I can be like the priest, as I've said. I know all too well that I've got very, very little to give. I'm not very good at this compassion stuff. And whatever might look good on the outside, what is inside is deeply, deeply flimsy. And I too often rob myself of all the vestiges even of looking like I love well. But this robbed man too is in a privileged position, actually. Because whilst he can't really appreciate this real love until the Good Samaritan comes and shows him this practical outpouring of incredible visceral love that takes him from the jewels of death and restores him back to life, he gets to see God's love in action. He gets to see the love that God is calling us to. Because until we grasp and we're convicted of our our inability to reach that standard of what God requires for us, we're not going to get the fullness of God's love for us. We're not going to be able to accept the greatness of God's love in his gospel, of all our inadequacies are dealt with. It's a huge love. Maybe the bank can come back up. But this, this parable this time reading through left me with this question do I need the good Samaritan to show me that and I I do I need it again and again I can't begin to really or keep living out any sense of real love unless I'm rooted in knowing where that real love came from first John 4 19 says we love because he loved us first Jesus loved us first Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus who was hounded, who was rejected, who was left out to die for us. He's our good Samaritan. In his gospel, John tells the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. This is the other sort of key time in the gospels where the Samaritans are mentioned other than, other than here. And this is how the conversation goes. Sir, the woman says, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, so the near Mount Gerasim. But you Jews call the place where you worship, say it's Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming where you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman says, I know you're the Messiah called Christ who's coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is explaining everything to this expert if we're willing to see it. Our hope is not in our efforts to justify ourselves. Our hope should be in the one true good Samaritan. The one who was cast out by his community and assaulted for us. But on a cosmic level, 
of significance, defeated death and rose again on Easter Sunday. In him we're going to find justification. He who came to fulfill the law. He who, one Colossians says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are being created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn amongst the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you need Jesus in your life? Or do you need to be reminded of the Jesus that is on offer for you through this parable? I do. But if that's you too today, please tell whoever you came with or tell Andy um, or or come and tell any of us uh, you sort of recognize it's good to share that Jesus is the hope of the world the parable of the good Samaritan is about our recognition that we need saving and the promise that we will be saved shall we sing